We arrived in Havana the day Fidel Castro, in a, a big cavalcade, arrived in Havana and celebrated their victory. And the same night, he gave his first speech in, in Havana, a victory speech, which took, I don't know, it, it seems it took hours. I managed to take some photos in very bad light from a distance, hand-holding a 300-millimeter lens uh, in poor light, and it was a miracle. My photos came out pretty well. Hello, beautiful people. This is episode number 21 of Photo Country, and I have a very special guest for you, Thor Eigeland, a veteran photojournalist whose work has been published on The Life magazine, National Geographic, Aramco, and many other international publications. He was there in Havana when Castro made his victory speech after winning the revolution. He has traveled with the Bedouins of Arabia and drank tea with the Marsh Arabs of Iraq. Here is a photographer witness to some iconic moments in history. It was truly an honor to talk to him. Thank you so much for coming on this podcast, Tor. It's a great privilege and honor to host you on this podcast. So let me start at the very beginning. You have more than 60 years of photojournalism behind you. In the last conversation that we had, you told me that you started your journey on the sea. Your love for travel started on a sea journey. Can you talk us through that and your introduction to photojournalism? Photojournalism really came later in the game. I started traveling at 1947. got permission from my parents very reluctantly to sign on to a Norwegian freighter that traveled from Oslo via 20-some ports to Shanghai. took nearly a year. At that time, I had a Kodak Brownie box camera, which is a museum item. I took about a dozen photos. Two of them came out. One was of a seaman. Moments after I took the photo, he fell down the hatch on the ship, and that was the end of it. So don't get in front of my camera. But it was a tremendous trip, and that really got me started. Rather than quenching my thirst for travel, it, it got worse. So you then traveled to Mexico for your university education, and I think that really was a catalyst for your photojournalistic career. Am I right? And I think you met some pretty important people there. I did. I ended up in Mexico after doing all kinds of crazy jobs in, in Canada. Worked in gold mines for a while. From Canada, I decided to go to Mexico and went to university there. And while at the university, I started more seriously to take photos. And I sent them off to different places, to England, to Norway, and also sold photos locally. So I guess you got into photojournalism because you had a love for life and a love for writing as well. So I'm curious now, how did these two come together? I started writing compositions when I was in, in school, for very young, in, in Norway. And I always kept up. I kept writing wherever I was. In Montreal, I started writing pieces for radio. The Canadian Broadcasting had a Norwegian section once a week. 
So I'd write some of their broadcasts, which were read by somebody else. What really almost formally got me into our photojournalism was that after being in school in Mexico, I went to Miami. And while I was there, I found that at the University of Miami, Wilson Hicks was teaching photojournalism. As it happens, Wilson Hicks was very famous. He used to be executive editor of the then famous Life magazine, where the world's best photojournalist worked at the time. So I ended up taking his course, and I knew definitely here's the way to go. While I was there, and I was under his wing, he had an assignment in Cuba because Fidel Castro was about to win his revolution. And the photographer, Flip Schulke, asked me if I could come with them as an assistant and because I spoke fluent Spanish. So that was a great, serious start to real photojournalism. I guess you were in the right place at the right time to get such an amazing opportunity. And in fact, when we were talking yesterday, you mentioned that you had met Che Guevara and Fidel Castro when you were a student at the Mexican University. That in itself is a story for another day, right? But just to keep a focus on photojournalism, tell us about your experiences when you arrived in Havana, Cuba. We arrived in Havana the day Fidel Castro, in a, a big cavalcade, arrived in Havana and celebrated their victory. And the same night, he gave his first speech in, in Havana, a victory speech, which took I don't know. It, it seemed it took hours. I managed to take some photos in very bad light from a distance, hand-holding a 300-millimeter lens uh, in poor light, and it was a miracle. My photos came out pretty well. So after Cuba, your photojournalistic career kind of took off. You got into National Geographic, Life magazine, Aramco, and so many other magazines. You started off when the world was analog and the world was quite different. You know, the travel was quite different. There was no extensive security checks like how it happens these days. There was no pandemic. The Cold War was going on. So I'm really curious to know how you handled your gear, the whole logistics of it. You should have carried all your gear, your film role and all of that. So can you tell us something about that? It, it seems hard to believe now. I, I was traveling with five pieces of luggage, usually. One would be my camera bag over my shoulder. But then before, four more pieces, plus on a serious assignment, I carried up to 200 rolls of film, mostly the old Kodachrome 25, which is what National Geographic preferred. I think rather than lugging all that gear around, had I had one of the modern phones, I, I'd do the whole assignment with a phone, I think. Right. Let's talk about Stuff Happens, the title of your new book. Why this book at this point in time? Why did you write this book? For, for all kinds of reasons, I, telling people the last few years some of the tales of my travels, 
invariably people would say, you should write a book. So in the end, that got to me. I'd done a lot of writing, but always for somebody else. So I thought, I do have some interesting tales to tell. Some of the material is quite historical. So I was hoping to inform and entertain. I always believed that people are pretty much the same wherever you are. Most people are damn good people, regardless of where they're from. So in a way, it's a thank you to the world as well. Amazing. I read through the book and that's the reason I started this podcast with your journey to Cuba and your meeting with Castro and Che Guevara. There's so many such fascinating and interesting stories throughout this book. Uh, stuff happens. Obviously, I can't discuss every story that is in the book, but there are a few that really stood out for me, which I want to cover in this podcast. The first one is your visit to Saudi Arabia, especially through the empty quarter. I never knew that there was a scenic side to Saudi Arabia. And especially there was a photograph of you having tea with uh, farmers in Saudi Arabia. That was really fascinating to me. There's a terrific amount of variety in, in Arabia, just within the desert, from mountainous desert and flat desert, dune desert, a lot of beautiful spots, hundreds of miles from any other water. There is water coming out of the ground, and you find a little oasis, and actually some are quite big. There's an endless variety of scenery, even just within the desert itself. There's just so much natural beauty, sunrise and sunset. It's invariably fascinating, beautiful, except when there's a sandstorm. Great. How was your experience with the Bedouins? I remember reading in the book that you were introduced to camel's milk. How did that go? I knew when I was going to do that story that one of the main things in their diet is, is camel's milk. And I thought, I just don't want any camel's milk. Didn't like that idea at all. Whenever you visit a, a tribe, they lay on quite a feast and a meal. And a part of that is definitely camel's milk. And when it was first offered to me in a bowl, straight from the camel, I pretended to be polite and handed to a chief who was sitting next to me, insisting he drink it. And he said, no, mishmunken, impossible. And then he kept saying, shut up. <laughs> and I thought, why is he telling me to shut up? And he insisted, shut up. And then somebody whispered to me, shut up means drink. So I shut up and I drank it. I was a little, well, fearful even. Then I tasted it and I thought, this is fantastic. This is really nice, rich. And I drank a good part of what was in that bowl. And this really pleased the family, the tribe I was with there. They thought it was great, that I loved the, the camel's milk. So before we get to the next story, which is about the Marsh Arabs, I wanted to talk about your shift from analog to digital. Was it smooth for you? What are your thoughts on it? It was reasonably smooth. I sometimes went on assignment and carried film camera and digital. But then as the clients I worked with more and more insisted on digital, I, I switched totally. You know, I got very fond of my old film cameras and the way they handled. But then digital, one huge 
advantage is that you didn't have to carry 200 rolls of film. But in the old days, I sent my rolls of film, usually by air freight to whomever I was working for. They would develop it and edit it, much less work. With digital, I found that you ended up, you spent a lot of time going through it on the computer. What I think is, during the analog times, you had a limitation in terms of the roles that you can carry. So you're very much aware of the number of shots that you can take. So you're very conscious that you get it right the first time, every time. But in a digital world, you have the luxury of taking the shot again and again. And sometimes you take more photographs than you should. And so that's probably the reason why people spend a lot of time going through hundreds of photographs just to get to the good ones. If you had the discipline that you had during the analog times, when you're using the digital camera, you'll probably spend a lot less time editing. You're absolutely right. A great thing when you're shooting digital is that you can see right away what you shot. Just to close off this fascinating conversation about your travels, Tor, I want to highlight the chapter on Marsh Arabs, because that's a way of life that's possibly lost to history at this point. Because unfortunately, Saddam Hussein decided to drain the marshes and persecute this community of marsh Arabs. Can you tell us something about your experiences with them, their lifestyle, and the landscape that you encountered? You really enter a totally different world here. I did write a book, and it's titled Where All the Lands Were Sea, which comes from some ancient poetry. But it's a whole world in water. It's a real adventure. And the beauty of, of that world was incredible. The Marsh Arabs, apparently their civilization dates back. Some say 3,000 years, others say 5,000 years. But anyway, it's the origins, ancient Mesopotamia. Of course, what I remember most was the friendliness of the local local families and tribes. They live in tiny settlements. When you travel there, you can't just get a boat and paddle into the marshes. You have to have a guide. And I was very lucky to have a guide who, who was brought up on the edge of the marshes who spoke the local kind of Arabic. When approaching a village, he would talk to somebody in a canoe, send them to, to the chief to tell them we would like to visit the area. We wouldn't enter any of these hamlets until we had the all clear, so that they could have coffee and tea ready to welcome us properly. It was quite intricate. They were always helpful, generous. I, I really liked those people. So, Tor, looking back over 60-plus years of photojournalistic experience, many thousands of kilometers traveled, thousands of frames shot, what is the message for future journalists, for boys and girls who are looking at getting into photojournalism as a career? What is your message to them? All I can say is that if you want to start, just shoot a lot of photos, get somebody who knows photography to look at what you're doing. If you were anywhere near some publishing house or maybe your school newspaper or whatever, Wherever you can find a bit of interest in your photos, work it that way. 
I guess practice makes perfect and you have to shoot a lot of frames in order to become good at their craft. Yeah, I think you put it better than I did there. That was Thor Eigland, veteran photojournalist from Norway. His book, Stuff Happens, The Far From Humdrum Life of a Photojournalist, is available now for purchase. You can get it from browndogbooks.uk. You can see Tor's work on his website, torigland.com, or follow him on Instagram. I will put all the links in the show notes. It was an absolute privilege and honor to chat with Tor Egland. Thank you so much for your time, Tor. Appreciate all you listeners who support this podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Until next time, stay safe and keep clicking. This is Rajiv signing off.